Welcome to yet another episode of Tao Unbound. I'm Ido Aharoni, your host, and today we will continue our conversations about the October 7th Gaza war uh, imposed on us by the brutal attack of uh, Hamas. And I'm very, very happy to have with us uh, Professor Uriah Shavit. Welcome to our podcast. Happy to be here. Uriah Shavit is a very well-known name in Israel. To those of you who don't know him, he's also a prolific writer who wrote for many years for Haaretz, but he's also a specialist in Islamic studies and also has a specialty in the study of uh, European Jewry. And, um, and we will talk about both in the context of what happened on, um, on October 7th. So my first question to you is, based on your area of expertise, which is something that every person who followed the events is baffled with, where this level of brutality and pre-civilizational cruelty is coming from? Well, I have to, first, to say first, we shouldn't care. I mean, because part of what we got us here is this endless chattering and, and analysis as to what they think, why they do it, and, and, and so forth. So we shouldn't really care where it's coming from. But the answer to your question is it's coming from a combination of a territorial dispute, an ethnic dispute, and a religious dispute in which uh, large quantities of anti-Semitism were injected. Uh, the, the comparison between Hamas and Nazis uh, is, is not Israeli propaganda. What we have here is an organization whose foundational charter is an anti-Semitic document. We have an organization who educates his youngsters from, from, from cradle to, to, to becoming militants on the idea that Jews are not human beings. We have here individuals who committed not just cold blood massacre, but one which I think consciously tried to imitate the horrors of the Holocaust. We have the worst atrocities that happened to Jewish people since the Holocaust. And what's even more fascinating, that it took just two weeks for us to have also Holocaust denial. That is, people like Quinn Rania, who are not shy to say, well, we're not sure this really happened, or we're not sure this really happened the way it's, uh, uh, the way it's presented by Israel in international media. And so you attribute that to massive indoctrination of the people of Gaza, but it goes beyond Gaza, right? You mentioned Queen Rania, but what's happening in other parts of the Muslim world? Well, that's the thing. We have to be also honest uh, and straightforward about one more thing, which is that you, 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 you could see the same atrocities committed by Muslims against Muslims in Iraq, in Syria, in, in larger scales. So, so the truth is, anti-Semitism is part of, of, is one component uh, in what caused the massacre, in what motivated the massacre, in what makes it so easy for so many people to ignore the atrocities and to ignore the teachings of their own religion when it comes to Jews. But we see it all across the region. And and do you do you agree with the framing of this uh, as a struggle between the rest, the West versus the rest? Is it like a 9-11 moment? It depends how you define the West. Because, you know, people who deal with, with uh, Islamic studies and with the study of anti-Semitism and with the study of Israel studies in the West, which I know you, you have dealt a lot with, uh, we often struggle with, 
we have struggled until two weeks ago with one question, which is the following. The BDS movement, is it a movement of people who have a different understanding of the conflict? And that is very eager to, to impose on Israel a two-state solution? So is it a movement we have differences with, uh, thorough differences, but nevertheless differences within some pale of, of legitimate discourse? Or is it a movement of anti-Semites who are thirsty for Jewish blood? And I think perhaps the only good thing that came out of, of, of Saturday two weeks ago, Saturday, October 7th, is that the masks were removed. The cats are out of the bag. We know now these are anti-Semites. We saw the joy, as one American professor said, the exhilaration with which they greeted the massacring of Jews, the massacring of Jewish civilians. Now, I have to ask you, I, I also watched this uh, remarks by this professor. His name is Russell Bickford. Thank from, you. Thank you for mentioning that. Can from, you say that name again? Yeah, Russell can Bickford. Google it? Yeah, yeah. And he's from the Bay Area, grew up in a pretty privileged family. Both parents are academics. So did Bin Laden, by the way. Um, oh, yeah. Bin Laden grew up uh, with, uh, was born into wealth, tremendous wealth. Um, and I'm sure that in your academic career, you encountered people like that. And I know that my, in my years that I spent on U.S. colleges, campuses, and I'm a big fan of the writings of Jonathan Haidt, who wrote about what's happening on American campuses and where it's coming from. So how do you deal with them? Well, you know what? They are not the real threat. They're not the ones that I think we should, we should care about. We should care about them in one way, whether, whether the professor you mentioned or Jeremy Corbyn, all this uh, bunch of despicables, they should be made from now on. They should be made feel thoroughly uncomfortable and unsafe wherever they go. Uh, we should strike back. But those who concern me more are people like the Harvard president those who are indifferent or would try to get away from all of this with a lot of academic jargon or, in other words, gibberish. Because what happened at Harvard uh, the day after, in fact, it, it was actually the same day, on the day the massacres occurred. What happened there was the absolute equivalent of a bunch of American university students supporting Japan the day after Pearl Harbor or supporting Bin Laden the day after 9-11. And people invoke the First Amendment. You know the United States better than I do. Will you agree with me that if they had done that the day after Pearl Harbor or the day after 9-11, the First Amendment would not stand to protect them? Well, let's remind our viewers and our listeners that in both U.S. and Canada after Pearl Harbor, people of Japanese background were put in internment camps. There's a wonderful documentary about that called Yankee Samurai, 140,000 Americans, innocent Americans, of Japanese background were put in camps. Did after you have American uh, Harvard, Yale students? No. Uh, uh, Berkeley, whatever. Yeah. Defending Bin Laden and saying it's the fault of the United States the day after 9-11. Well, I, I remember there were a few academics, faculty members, who said things like that after 9-11, and they were immediately reprimanded. And I suppose dismissed as well. Uh, some of them at least. And there were a few, and these were not 31 or 33 student organizations. And you know what what's I find fascinating? People keep asking two questions. One is, do these people not realize that if Israel falls, Europe and then the United States, 
that the United States will fall along with it. That is, do they not understand that there is an element of a civilizational war here? How can they be so blind? So what about the following hypothesis? They do understand. They understand it perfectly. That is what they wish. That is what they wish for. The fight is not really against Israel. Israel is a boogeyman of sorts. The fight is against the West itself. And then people ask, are they really indifferent to the fact, or are they ignorant about the fact that Hamas is an organization uh, that oppresses women, that discriminates against Christians, that throws homosexuals off balconies? Do they not care about that? Are they ignorant about that? Well, what about the option that they are aware about that? They are aware of th those facts. And they just don't care because while presented as progressive individuals or as liberals, they are no more progressive or liberals than the leftists who supported Stalin in the 50s. That is the simple truth. And then there is another question that's often asked, which is, well, can you kill an idea? I mean, how many times have you heard that uh, over the past two weeks? Can we kill an idea? Can we kill Hamas? Well, what did we do with Nazism? And we, did. we cannot kill the idea entirely. You have Nazis in the United States, you still have Nazis in Germany. But you made them so weak that they are no longer a threat. And you delegitimized them to the point that they are not, at the present time, a threat. What about ISIS? I remember 10 years ago, people spoke about ISIS as the, the, the evolving force in the Muslim world, the force that will take over the entire Muslim world. Where is ISIS today? It doesn't mean the idea, uh, which is in some ways different than the idea of the, the ideology of Hamas, but it doesn't mean that the idea is not there. It doesn't mean that you can find it online, just like you can find Mein Kampf online. But the movement is no longer a potent, viable force that, that threatens the existence of the West, which more or less, I think, um, leads us to the answer as to what should be done with Hamas. It should, it should be completely eliminated. And the professors and the politicians and the media personalities who endorsed it should be delegitimized in the harshest way, in the harshest terms. And if you had to give advice to the decision makers in Israel, assuming, assuming that Israel has the military capacity to take out the military capabilities of Hamas and possibly even impose the uh, expulsion of Hamas leadership from Gaza, let's say, to Doha. Then what do we do with the 2.1 million Palestinians in the, in the Gaza Strip? Uh, we do with them what the United States did with uh, dozens of millions of Japanese the day, the day after the Second World War ended, what it did with Germans the day after it ended. Indeed, the true answer to that, to the question you're asking, is that Israel simply has no choice because this distinction between uh, the, the military wing of Hamas and the civilian wings of Hamas, it's artificial. Uh, there is either going to be um, uh, in the Gaza Strip, there's either going to be in two months from now um, an Israeli military government or there's going to be a, a sustained uh, Hamas uh, government that poses a, a constant military threat to, to, to Israel. These are the two options. So Do since you we think, don't have a third option... And I'm asking you this... Uh, wearing your hat as, a, as an observer and commentator of Israeli society. Do you think Israeli society, and more importantly, Israeli leadership, is up for that task? The current one? Yeah. I doubt it. I doubt it. I doubt if the, the, the current prime minister is up to any task. 
I mean, he obviously proved himself as incompetent and someone who makes bad choices. And I think the honorable thing for him to do would have been to resign and let someone else, and let someone else take the reins. I mean, people, he liked to compare himself to Churchill. But Churchill was not the prime minister of Britain at the very start of the, the, the Second World War. And uh, to Churchill's credit is the first thing he did after he became prime minister is face the public. Yes. And he gave a speech that is remembered in history as one of the most important political speeches ever in which he offered the British people nothing but blood, sweat, and tears. And, um, and let's so, be honest, we, we are not Britain of, of, of 1939 and not Britain of, even of 1941. Yeah. I mean, in the end, this is a regional power that is fighting 30,000 uh, militiamen who, who, who have mostly uh, uh, light weapons. We have to bear that in mind. I mean, the comparison to the Holocaust is, 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 is valid in many ways. It's not valid in the sense that we are not today ghetto youth. Now, teach us a little bit more about the differences, the ideological differences between ISIS and Hamas, especially because of your European connection, because ISIS, after all, is in many ways a European creation. But the Hamas is a Muslim Brothers movement. And ISIS is a takfiri movement, is a jihadi Salafi movement. And if, if I try to, you know, to sum up uh, um, uh, decades of history and <laughs> quite a number of books in a few sentences, I would say the following. What both uh, Hamas and ISIS uh, desire to see, what both the Muslim brothers and ISIS desire to see, is Muslim societies where Islam regains its status as a framework that organizes all aspects of life, including the political. And what they also have in common is seeing politics as the means to achieve that goal. The differences lie in two important areas. One is that, um, and without getting into too deep waters, uh, one is that Hamas, uh, as the Muslim brothers, is very reluctant to launch violent revolutions against Muslim regimes. It considers regimes that are Muslim, but are not good Muslim regimes, nevertheless to be Muslim. That is, to be, uh, not to be regimes uh, which are infidel and which should be excommunicated, and therefore could be um, uh, against which uh, violent jihad uh, can be launched. That is not the way ISIS sees things. For ISIS, uh, the, the Egyptian regime and the Israeli regime are equal evils. And in, in a way, uh, the Egyptian one has priority in terms of fighting it because it deceives people to believe that it is Muslim. The other important point is that because Al-Qaeda and ISIS, um, their origins are to an extent in Saudi Arabia, the views regarding social issues, everyday life issues, tend to be far, far more strict and dogmatic than the ones of Muslim Brothers, whose uh, approach to, to gender, uh, to leisure, I wouldn't say is liberal, but is more pragmatic than the ones of the Takfiri movements, the Jihadi Salafi movements. So in many ways... I always preferred, by the way, ISIS to Hamas, for a simple reason. It's not nice to say what I'm going to say now, but uh, Jihadi Salafi groups are Muslims who kill Muslims. Uh, Hamas are Muslims who kill Jews. So in, if, I, if I understood you correctly, the hashtag Hamas is the new ISIS is actually quite misleading. No, it's not because the methods were the same. The inspiration 
was ISIS inspiration and Nazi inspiration. Look, if they prefer Hamas is, is, is uh, Nazism, I mean, let's, let's go for that. I mean, but I think in the end, you know, some of those issues are really splitting hairs which interest professors. But in the end, in terms of the threat to the West, I think that there is no difference. And I want to explain why with just, if you allow me with just one, uh, sure. uh, uh, one brief um, uh, reading of the Charter of Hamas. Why does Hamas not recognize the existence of the State of Israel? Because if, 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 if people had read the Charter, if all those university students on American campuses, and by the way, also in Israeli campuses, had bothered to actually read the Charter, they would understand that the issue Hamas has is not with occupation. It has nothing to do with 1967. Hamas is very clear, is unequivocal. Also in the so-called amended charter of 2017, which is not a charter and is not amended, but nevertheless, also there, is unambiguous, unequivocal about its intention to liberate by force what they call all of Palestine. That means also Tel Aviv University grounds. How do they explain that? How do they justify that? This breach, by the way, of international law, which it seems that is very dear to some people. But how do they justify that? Well, they say, this is a Muslim endowment. This is Wakfland, because Jews took it over from Muslims. Well, if we follow that logic, we have to answer the following question. Then what about Spain? What about Romania? What about Serbia? What about Cyprus? Are they next? Well, obviously, if you follow that logic, if it is true to itself, then they have to be next when the job is done here, when the job is finished here. Yeah, which takes me to my next question, I, and I had intended anyhow to shift the conversation to Europe. So what's happening in Europe? Um, I, I feel that this is like a watershed movement. It's true that on the one hand, a watershed moment, I, on the one hand, we see pro-Palestinian uh, anti Israel demonstration, but on the other hand, I see a lot of information coming, especially from mainstream, respectable, reputable media that indicates that publicly at least, the most Western European countries do understand the severity of the problem that they're facing. I have to say it's a little bit more complicated than that, the issue of Islam in Europe. I say that as someone who spent uh, 15 years studying European Islam through field studies. That if I spent... Uh, Participant great, observation. Yes, a great number of days uh, in mosques, and usually in the radical ones. So first, there isn't really such a thing as European Islam or Islam or the Islam in Europe, simply because these communities and individuals are split uh, into so many different factions including people who, whose uh, Islamic identity is as practiced as I would imagine is your Jewish identity. If we uh, just zoom in on, on mosques, there are very different mosques across Europe. There are some that preach tolerance and there are some that are very radical. Um, I think we have to address this uh, case-based. And we, ask, we also have to recognize that uh, a segment within the European Muslim population is a potential bridge between Israel and the Muslim world. I can tell you that some of my best friends are European Muslims. And they're not just, some of them are not just true friends of Israel and of the Jewish people, 
They're such peace-loving people and, and, and such um, great examples of how religion can motivate people to be good, to be better. So that's something I think we have to keep in mind. It's also something that we have to keep in mind is, you know, as, as we speak. We should remember that as we speak, there are hundreds of Muslim medical doctors attending to patients, uh, including from, uh, from the Saturday massacre uh, in Israeli hospitals who are Muslim. And that not a small number of Muslims were targeted by Hamas during the, the, the Saturday massacre. So I think we have to keep those things in mind, even in such difficult days. It's more complex. But, but I'm asking you more on a, you know, from a 30,000 feet above look at what's happening in Europe. How do you think this would impact the conversation about the place of Islam in Europe? And I understand, I totally understand what you're saying. What you're saying is that the picture is more complex. It's not black and white. It's not zero sum. And in fact, some Muslim communities could serve as a bridge. And I totally get that. But how do you, because again, what we've never seen, not even during 82 Lebanon war, such massive anti-Israel demonstrations in, in, in major European cities, even in Australia, in Sydney. I think first our focus should be campuses. Really much of the poison come from university campuses, comes from university campuses. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's very easy for Israeli professors to overlook that or to look the other way, but that's where it's coming from. Much of the viciousness and the confidence with which it is articulated is coming from university campuses, not from mosques. When it comes to mosques, again, we have to, we have to really uh, uh, treat this uh, uh, case-based. And there are some uh, mosques in Europe that are extremely radical and extremely anti-Israel. Uh, and I think, uh, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I don't think that security agencies in the West are blind to that fact. I think what was overlooked for many years is what's happening on campuses. Because the mosques, really, there is intelligence work there. And that's one of the reasons why perhaps some of them are very careful not to say certain things. So it could be that the image they're projecting is, is not a truthful so, one. So, you know, what's happening on campuses, at least in the United States, I know that in England, they're, they're doing a better job uh, university administrators are doing a better job than in the United States, also because in the United States, especially in private universities, the administrators are afraid of the students. In the United States, administrators and professors are afraid of the students. That's why American academia is declining. Right. And so uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the writings of Jonathan Haidt uh, from NYU. But he wrote a book, which I think is one of the most important books on the subject, called The Coddling of the American Mind. And uh, he talks about the reasons for it. Which I guess is a take on the closure of the American mind of Leo Strauss. Of, of Ellen Bloom. Ellen yeah. Bloom, sorry. Yes. Ellen, Ellen Bloom, Bloom yeah. yeah. Ellen Bloom wrote that in 86, The Closing yes. of the American Mind. And this is basically, it continues in the same direction, actually. Um, but Jonathan Haidt writes about the root causes for this. And he says that it's not only social media. And, and indeed, since the introduction of the smartphone, you see a rise in insecurity, anxiety, number of suicides, the demand for safetyism, and so on. But it has a lot to do with the overprotective parenting yes. 
of the 1990s. The laziness. Have you read that uh, editorial that the Harvard student uh, newspaper, the Daily newspaper, published around a year ago? The one that where they uh, uh, stated that they are now endorsing the BDS movement? No, I have not. So I wrote about it, and, and I, I, the title I, I gave my piece was uh, The Harvard Lazy. Because I, aside of the self-righteousness and, and the cowardness that, that they showed, one of the things that bothered me most about this piece, that their editorial, was how intellectually lazy it was, how non-committed to anything it was, how ignorant it was. And I thought, you know, at least have the courage. If you think that Israel does not have a right to exist as the national home of the Jewish people, well, then state your mind and explain why. And then stand for it. Stand up for it. They haven't done that. And their editorial, to a large extent, as the response of the Harvard president, the shameful response of the Harvard president to, to the statement that was issued uh, on the day of the massacre a year later, was mostly about not saying anything or the appearance of saying a lot while, in fact, not committing to anything and not risking anything. And that's uh, supposed to be an elite American university. Well, as Bill Maher, uh, the famous American comedian who has a show with a huge following, said, if you're considering attending an American Ivy League school, here's my advice. Don't. Don't. <laughs> well, because if that's the elite, it kind of makes you wonder. Yeah, and but to the credit of Harvard, we should say that Larry Summers, the former president, came out very strongly against... Not strongly enough. That lady must be forced to resign. If Harvard is sincere about anything. Look, it's one thing to have political debates. Uh, it's another thing to celebrate the murder of babies, the cold-blooded murder of babies. And I think there is a question that should not be avoided. In the end, everything you know comes down to one question, which is why I find a lot of these debates very boring. Because there is one question that needs to be asked, and then everything is clear. Do you accept that the Jewish people have a right for a nation state in the land of Israel slash Palestine? Do you accept that or not? Everything else is redundant. Now, if you say, well, I would have accepted that, but these are people who are colonialists and came from some distant country and took over lands, then I would accept, I, I would I'd surprise you. I'd respect that view in principle, but only if you answer one more additional question, which is, then what about the United States? What about Canada? What about New Zealand? What about Australia? What about Argentina? What about Saudi Arabia? Well, there was no affinity between a nation and the land. These were not diasporas. Where the lands were not purchased with money from those who lived there. And when there wasn't a, 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 a continued presence in the land for hundreds of years by a segment of the nation that became diasporic. If they can just answer that question, if the Harvard president can just answer that question, would she allow students to challenge the right of the United States to exist? Yeah. And again, to Would go, she? To, and again, to, to uh, 
mentioned Bill Maher one more time, he also mocked a, a liberal arts college in Connecticut for, for issuing the same statement about Israel as a colonial phenomenon. And then he says, do you understand? They published this in Connecticut. <laughs> and he, he, he reiterated the word Connecticut. But they recognized twice. that the land was once Indian. They were Native Americans, sorry. They recognized that. Yeah. That's, that's very important. Well, you know, we can talk a lot about the hypocrisy that we find in many academic institutions, but I must say, based it's not on my... It's hypocrisy, by the way. It's self-suicidal policies. It's, self it's not quite the same. But I must say that my experience in public universities in the United States is very different because in public universities, when it's not about the tuition and there, it's not a transactional thing, I find that kids actually come to study and that the... Faculty is not afraid of the students, um, which I don't find in private universities anymore. The faculty is afraid of the students. Even Jonathan Haidt talks about that. The things that he would have said 10 years ago to, to, in class, he will never say today. Well, you know, I could go on for hours, but we're being kicked out of the space. Because there's another, uh, I guess, podcast um, scheduled. I wanted to thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Uh, for really speaking your mind. It's so refreshing. Well, it would be strange if I spoke someone else's mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope to host you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. And to our viewers and listeners back home, goodbye from Tel Aviv until our next episode.